Hi, my name is Jonathan Kiersby. Welcome to Sax Reel, the podcast that gives you the inside scoop on your favorite saxophone-loving musicians. Each episode, I will have a new guest in to share their fun stories about their past, talk about their experiences as musicians and educators, and to share any exciting projects that they're working on. Welcome to the season finale of season one. I'm very excited to have another guest in. He is a member of the award-winning H2 Quartet. He's the faculty member at the Cortona Sessions for New Music and the Great Plains Saxophone Workshop. And I have the pleasure of studying with him at Florida State University. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Dybul. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Really excited to be a part of this. When you first started on the saxophone, was there someone that really had a formative impact on you? Definitely. I, I started off initially with a teacher that didn't really get my interest peaked in terms of what we were doing. I was just kind of playing out of a, a, a book with a tape of, of kind of smooth jazz or pop jazz, and I wasn't really <laughs> enjoying it. And then it was suggested to me um, uh, to t- take with another teacher whose name is Reginald Jackson, and uh, Reg is the soprano saxophonist with the Washington Saxophone Quartet. You might hear them uh, pretty frequently on NPR. If you listen to NPR, they're playing the theme all the time. And it took me a while to kind of start working. Uh, I think every student has that experience of, you know, they might have talent, they might they might be somewhat good at what they do, but there's a point in time in which they begin to realize that the level of effort that they put into their music making, you know, vis-a-vis practicing and preparing for lessons, you know, has all the impact when it comes to, to actually getting better and you know improving on the instrument. And so I was fortunate that I finally did get over that uh, initial hump of, of being a good student. And yeah, he, he said some things that made a huge impression on me and I continue to think about very frequently, even today. One of those things that in the beginning was the idea of being a great musician first and a saxophonist second. And it was something that he said a number of times, and I think, you know, it, it, it can be the case for any musician. It doesn't have to be a saxophonist, but the idea that, you know, there are musicianship skills that we all can gain that are basically amplified through the voice that we choose. You know, the saxophone is really just our vehicle for making music. So that was that was one of those things that he taught me, and he, he also developed, I think, a respect and, and love for and searching for um, all different kinds of music that can inform our musicianship so that we can become those great musicians. So we would regularly go down into his basement from, from the studio that he taught in in his house, and he would throw on records on the record player and, and play uh, Luciano Pavarotti and uh, some violinists. But it started to get a sense of, you know, this music thing is more than just what it is that I'm doing when I sit down and play. You know, there's there's a wider world to connect to that we can channel through what we do when we're actually playing the horn. So that, I know, I think that extended for me when I went off to college and started studying with Fred Hemke at Northwestern and and then certainly through my master's degree there and as well when I went to uh, Michigan State and studied with Joe Luloff. And I came to realize that not only is being a good musician uh, having to do with things that you know, our saxophone playing or playing music. But I think being a good musician is really about being an excellent human being in every conceivable way. Being a lifelong learner, being someone that's naturally curious about things, being someone that is generous about everything that they do in their interactions with people, and someone that's really genuinely able to convey 
some part of themselves uh, through their performance. And, and so again, in, in essence, it gets down to really communication um, and, and how do you communicate those things that can be deeply felt by other human beings. So yeah, I think those were some of the kernels of wisdom, I'd say, that I learned you know, when I was a very young student, 17, 18 years old. And, and then I was fortunate to have teachers that really helped me develop those things later on in, in my, my career in different ways, you know, but, but equally, I would say. It's interesting that you mentioned the communication as a form of being a good musician. I feel like Hemke, throughout all the interviews that I've done, it seems that he is a really good communicator. And of course, that comes through his amazing teaching and everything. But he was also known as being a quite a challenging teacher. And I'm wondering if there was ever any moments that you had with him where he really challenged you in a way that really lasted and imprinted on you. Yeah, there was there was a time actually where I was playing. I, I waited to play the Iber Concertino until my senior year, I believe. It was either my junior year or senior year, but I waited on that one because I knew it was kind of this holy grail of you know saxophone you know music and wanted to make sure that I was really ready for it and and would play it well. So I was playing that piece and playing the second, the beginning of the second movement, and that was a very intense year. My my lesson partner. Uh, was a guy named Sean Tracy, who's a great saxophonist and awesome, awesome person. And I believe he may still be in Chicago, but he and Dr. Hemke used to really rake me over the coals when it came to, you know, many things. But at the at the core of it was just being honest about what was going on in my playing. So I was playing the second movement of the uh, the beginning of the uh, second movement of the Ibier, and I got done with maybe that opening cadenza and one of them said I can't remember who uh, they said you're not really listening are you and I said yeah I am I'm listening yeah and they said no you're not you're not listening to yourself and I said well I I, I feel like I'm listening he's like okay I want you to play again I want you to really listen as you play and so I played it again and then same thing you're not listening you're not really listening to yourself are you and I said yeah I'm listening I mean yeah and so that really brought out to me the difference between what hearing is and what listening is. Hearing is a physiological phenomenon. Listening is a psychological phenomenon where we're engaging actively and experiencing the moment in real time. And so the way that they got me to do that, and I believe this came from, from Dr. Hemke, was Dr. Hemke said, imagine that you're in Regenstein Recital Hall, which was our, our old recital hall, and um, he said, imagine you're playing in it, and it's very similar to the one that we have here at Florida State, which is really interesting. Our, our uh, DRH is very similar. It's kind of a stadium-style concert hall. Um, feels intimate, even though it has a lot of seats. Imagine you're sitting in the middle of Regenstein Recital Hall watching yourself perform, and I want you to be in two minds at the same time. I want you to imagine that you're on stage playing, and I also want you to imagine that you're out listening to yourself as you perform and be both the performer and the audience member at the exact same time. And that really shifted my, my thinking. And I think just my, my, my senses heightened by imagining that I was doing that. And I heard and listened in a different way than I ever had before. And, and that's really stuck with me. And I still use that in lots of lessons of, of just imagining that you're hearing yourself as you perform. Dr. Hemke, of course, he was, you know, he was a fantastic teacher, but he also had a lot of things that he did on a more personal level with his students. I've heard a lot about the things that he did, like having softball games with his students. I'm just wondering if you had any memories of those kinds of experiences with him also. 
Yeah, um, it was interesting because we had a strong bond as a studio, and I think every studio has their own vibe, and that vibe is always made up of, you know, the personalities that the students have themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember that that changed year to year. Freshman and sophomore years were, were great. I just saw an old friend, my, my friend Jonathan Sanford, who's out in L.A., doing some great work out there, getting some recognition as, as a, a composer and a producer now. But he was sort of the, Jonathan was sort of the ringleader of all of us when we <laughs> get together and hang out as students. But there was a, a great communal quality to the studio, and even the people that didn't necessarily have a personal connection in that specific way. There was always, like a, I think, a mutual respect and an understanding that we were all there to do the same thing which was, of course, become the, the best musicians that we could and, and share share art together in all its various forms mm. um, and, and to learn, you know, to learn as much as we could. And he just exuded that with every single thing that he said. I remember seeing him in uh, Zagreb a couple of years ago, and he, he gave a lecture, which I, I think it may have just been the master class portion, so mm. it would be a real shame if that wasn't recorded. But that in that talk, he talked about the, the similarities of audiences watching big sporting events and those uh, people that are watching concerts and also you know the people on stage as being the athletes or, or something he was the uh, northwestern representative to the ncaa for many many years mm. and it just brought back so many memories he talked also about the right brain left brain connection and 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 how we can take advantage of our control over those different things that we possess uh in terms of our subconscious um, and, and, and what we physically are consciously doing on the instrument when we play and the connection between the two. And I j it just brought back so many of those um, lesson situations that I remember where, you know, he wasn't necessarily talking about, okay, make sure you put down the bisque here because you got to do this thing and, you know, the measure 55 or whatever. But, uh, you know, it was, it was more about the deeper meaning of what we do as musicians. Again, just getting back to that, that level of humanity that we all want to experience every day in our interactions with people and we do that through music mm -hmm. so i think that that was something about his personality that we all truly enjoyed and valued um and it's something that i have to say that the musicians that i gravitate towards are are all people that have some element of that in in their in their music making or in their personality or in their teaching and i think yeah that he was a model for us in that sense when did the H2 quartet become a thing? Because I know, I think you met some of them at Northwestern, but then it ended up officially forming while you were at Michigan State. What was that story of the conception of the group? When we were at Northwestern, he would have us playing quartets, and they, usually the quartets changed every year. There was rarely, mm. I can't really remember a quartet that continued longer than a year, which at the time was just, you know, normal because I didn't know anything else. In retrospect, later on, I thought, like, well, why didn't groups stay together longer than that? But there's a certain advantage to that in that you learn how to work with lots of different people. Um, Very true. Situations. So there was, there was definitely value to it. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a group that had formed, I believe, when I went back as a master's student, uh, was maybe the first or second year. There were different people that were in, in and out of, of the group. It was originally called the Hyacinth Quartet, which was the group that formed when I had gone back 
as a master's student, and it was myself, Jeff Leffert, Jared Ziegler, who's up in Wisconsin, and uh, Johnny Salinas, who's now mm. actually teaching alongside Jeff at Oklahoma State. And I was a little... Uh, J- Jeff had approached me about doing a competitive quartet that year, and I was someone at the time that really hadn't done too many competitions. I'd done a couple of solo competitions, but he was very gung-ho about it, and we met, I remember we met in the student center one day and he was talking to me about it. And I was kind of not real excited about the idea at first, but he was essentially trying to recruit me into the group. And I allowed myself to be convinced. And that group just in a year had a lot of success. We went to Chesapeake Chamber Music Competition, which was the inaugural year of that that competition. I'm not sure if it's still going or not, but it, it was a very, we, we went and we were definitely I don't want to say we were out of our element because we played really well and I, I thought we represented ourselves well, but, you know, we were playing against literal professional groups at the time, you know, like groups that had been around for a while. And I remember that made a big impression on me. Um, and I believe we also went to uh, the, I want to say the Coleman competition that year mm-hmm. as well. So we, we had some success as a group and I got a taste of what it was like to be in competitions and to rehearse lots of hours per week and start engaging. In fact, I just came across some notes from when we used to take notes after rehearsals and and record ourselves. And so, yeah, we did that for a year. I was only there for a year as a student, so I kind of left the group and was in Chicago but not playing with them. And then Jeff Lefford and, and I believe Kim Lefford came into the group after I left. And then they both migrated up to Michigan State for their master's and then subsequently their doctoral degrees. And there came then the time that I was applying for my doctoral uh, degree. And again, Jeff Leffert called me up and kind of recruited me into the group. <laughs> said, Let's get the band back together again. And uh, yeah, when I decided that Michigan State was the place that I wanted to go and uh, went up there. And, and that's when H2 in its present form was formed. You guys did do a lot of competitions and competed, and you did very successfully at them. I'm just wondering, was there any funny stories of like mishaps? Because I, I don't know why, I just find those to be the most entertaining. When we went to Fish Off, I remember the year that we that we won the Fish Off competition. Uh, it was a real gauntlet. Uh, we got we got placed at probably the earliest or one of the earliest times every day that oh, we competed. And there was, you know, there was the initial tape round. Mm-hmm. And then there was, of course, when you went, there was a, a semifinal and then a quarterfinal, I think, and then a final or something like this. That's um, a lot. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was three rounds of playing. And so the first round, I remember, was like 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning. The second one was 8 o'clock or maybe even earlier. I can't remember. It was super early. And we all, you know, were packed into a, a Super 8 hotel, a hotel <laughs> in uh, Indiana there. And I remember we all had to, you know, take our showers, so we had to get up really early. And I, I, one of our members actually ended up falling asleep in the shower. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> and, and kind of falling out of the shower. I remember kind of being half awake that morning and hearing, uh, you know, Goo-goom, you know, <laughs> in the wall next to me. And I was like, what was that? And then later on they, they told us they, they had kind of half fallen asleep. <laughs> That's <laughs> wild. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was, it was a good time, but you know, we, we got stronger, I think with every round, um, we got more comfortable and got stronger and, and, uh, the confidence built and it was a really amazing experience for sure. Like to, to, you know, hear this third, fourth, 
second places get called out and then all of a sudden be like, wait, they haven't called our name yet. You know, <laughs> it was pretty wild for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that you guys have stayed together for so long. And of course you guys have done so much since your competitive stage of life. Um, yeah. I love that you guys have continually put out recordings and especially with that new one that just came out too. I'm just wondering, since I haven't had a guest talk about that experience of recording a CD yet, I'd love to hear your thoughts and insight on that process. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we just released our seventh CD. Go get it now. It's called Infinity Mirror. com, And we just got the physical CDs a couple of days ago. They look great. The process of recording a CD is definitely a learning experience in itself. And I think it has a lot to do with the kind of music that you're playing. I actually, you know, despite maybe the number of quartet recordings that we've done, I, I definitely had an experience recording my first solo CD that maybe is instructive where I was playing one of the pieces that had rests that were built into it. You know, there were there were fermatas and rests that were built into it. So the way that I recorded it was to, you know, I did play through it, and this is usually what we do with the quartet. We usually take, we don't always do this, but we'll usually take a longer take or maybe a full run of, of the piece. And I think that continuity aspect to performance is very important when you record. And so the lesson that I learned when I was recording my solo CD was that it is important to maintain that to the point that, you know, to, to the extent that you can, because there's a certain energy lost if you end up taking more of a break than you otherwise would. You know, you don't have the same mindset having just come from one phrase and then moving on to the other. And there's a certain energy maybe that um, is lost. I mean, I think I, I, I achieved what I wanted to achieve, but... It was something I remember listening back to it that I thought, well, maybe I would just do that a bit differently next time. I think planning is very important when it comes to recording a CD. So, you know, being really realistic about how much time it's going to take overall is is certainly important. Spacing out the material uh, so that you're not doing all the hardest stuff all in one day. Mm. Certain parts will be harder for certain players in the various pieces so just being fair to everybody and making sure that you spread out you know the difficulty mm. um, across the recording sessions but yeah I think I think the planning stage is very very important and figuring out the best way to record things like some things a lot of times uh, require a lot of editing sometimes you don't require that much editing I found by and large that no matter how many takes that you do almost always the best takes are like the first or second take mm. There's sometimes where you get one that's later on a bit better, but almost always the first or second take. Aside from recording CDs, you also, of course, recorded a lot for your quartet competitions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for quartets that are trying to record, like maybe setting up that schedule for them? Like, what would your advice be for that? Yeah, well, it's maybe somewhat of an advantage that we have now with our you know, virtual format of lessons in some cases is that we are recording ourselves more regularly and we are observing not just our sounds, but also the, the way that we look on video, mm -hmm. um, the way that we present ourselves as performers. I think that's a really valuable aspect to what we're having to do right now. So maybe a little uh, silver lining in all this madness that we have to go through right now. Yeah. So I think my advice would simply be that, is, is to go ahead and start going through that process of recording yourself on a regular basis mm -hmm. um, so that you don't get surprised by what you hear when you when you listen to a tape. Um, and you're going to get a very different experience. I mean, this is one of the things about just playing in groups in general um, that I've experienced plenty is, you know, playing your part in a group 
in a quartet is very different from then stepping back and listening to the full recording yep. as an ensemble. And that, that's not always true, but I've had many experiences where, you know, when I hear the piece, I was like, whoa, like this sounds very different as a whole than it is for me to play the piece with the group. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an interesting thing. At, at, at its best, I think chamber playing, well, chamber playing and, and any ensemble playing and performance in general is, is at its best when you are familiar enough with your part that you don't really have to pay too much attention to it, but you're able to kind of take that step back, as I was describing before, as a listener, mm. and, and to be listening to your, you know, your colleagues and have that awareness. It's about developing the sense of awareness through familiarity that I think is a big advantage. So the more that you can develop that as a player, um, the better. And that I think that really comes from just having a general recording practice and, and schedule that you that you do put yourself in that position and then you know what the final product is going to sound like well before you put it together. Yeah, I've definitely been there where you start recording and you're like, what am I doing? Have I seen this music before? <laughs> so that's definitely some good advice there. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, the more you do it, you know, the more comfortable you get. I remember for for us as well, the first time that red light went on, like I just had a sudden like change in mindset that I was mm-hmm. just whoa, like, yeah, this is for real now. I can't I can't mess this up, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually you learn to get over that and you're like, you know, just play like you normally do and it's totally fine. So I think, I think I've gotten much better at that and I think as a group we've also gotten much better at that over the years. Mm-hmm. But it, it really helps you develop your ears. I mean... For sure. You know, I might think something is fine and, you know, Jonathan thinks it's not, you know, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Or, or one of us might hear something in a different... I'll, I'll give you a great example. Actually, when we were recording this last one... We were playing this piece called um, Homage by Zachariah Goh, who's a composer from Singapore. And he wrote this piece kind of like as an homage to, to Bach. And so there's a lot of very consonant harmonies and, and very obvious cadence points. And so as a quartet over the years, we've learned to tune our thirds 13.7 cents flat because that's like right right in tune in, tune in terms of the just intonation. And so we were playing one of these chords re- recording this cadence point and our recording engineer is, is an incredible pianist like a, a professional pianist is played in Carnegie Hall uh, Sergei Kavico and um, he said I think this is this flat that third is flat and we're like no it's not it's perfectly in tune <laughs> and it was a really interesting experience for me I remember because the way we have it set up now is that you know we can record something and he's like I don't know you come listen to this and we'll come and you know put headphones on and and hear what he's just recorded. So we did it a couple different ways. We did it the way we did it, and then we did it just a little bit sharper on the third. And and he was pointing out simply that the color, the coloration of the chord, sounds different. Mm. It's not necessarily like one's not better than the other, but it definitely has a different feel when you hear it in those two different tunings. And so it was an interesting experience for me. Um, he, you know, he was of the opinion that he thought it was going to come across as out of tune or, or flat or just there, there, there's more vibrancy perhaps to the sound when you have slightly sharper tuning on that third. Yeah. Now, whether that's adjusting for people that are used to, um, equal temperament, maybe, maybe that's what it was in our minds, but mm-hmm. it was, it was an interesting experience for sure. One thing that I have talked about with a lot of my guests is the idea of studio culture, and especially being relatively new at Florida State, I know that this is something that you've been working on a lot, is creating a studio culture that you're happy with. So I'm just curious, how do you go about doing that? It's a tough one. I think 
I would like to think that the way that I interact with my students and my my value system demonstrated through that serves an, as an example. So I think that's the most important thing, and and that I think that sets the tone um, mm -hmm. for any studio, you know. So if you have a teacher that's a jerk, you know, then I think that's probably going to rub off on people, and they and they're going to they're going to model that behavior that they see from from their teacher. So that's very important. Um, I'm always trying to think about the most equitable way to um, handle things uh, when it comes to anything dealing with, you know, lesson scheduling to maybe issues or, you know, conflicts that come up within quartets that I'm coaching, um, which fortunately has been pretty minimal, but it happens, um, or, or anything else that might, might come up. So I'm always thinking about that, trying to make sure I'm treating people equally treating people with respect, but also maintaining a level of expectation mm -hmm. that um, is going to be something they'll respond to and, and rise to the occasion. Because I think most students want that. Most students want a high level ex of expectation and to, and to be pushed. That's why we're all here. So I think just that part of the teacher's uh, demeanor and behavior is very, very important for setting the tone. And then beyond that, I think one of the things that I try to do as a teacher, and I'm trying to do much more this year, partially because of the whole uh, pandemic situation, but also because they're topics I've always been interested in, and I think that they're topics that are not discussed really very much at all um, in most studios. So I think that it's going to make us kind of a unique studio. We have now that's forming a relationship with um, our sports psychology program here at Florida State. So what, what that was last year it was simply I brought in a sports psychologist um, into our studio class and we had a discussion on performance anxiety, what to expect as a student, and how to deal with those things that come up relating to performance anxiety. And it's something that I've talked about plenty as a teacher, which again, really never got discussed when I was a student, um, but I think they need to be discussed because that's what we all deal with. And so I'm extending it this year to talk about two different topics and two different books. One of them is a book called Drive by Daniel Pink, and that talks about dealing with finding the intrinsic motivation that's necessary to be successful as a student, or really in any profession, but, but as specifically as a student. I think it's important for our younger students, that's what I'm doing with the freshmen and sophomores, I think it's important for the younger students because they're undergoing a transition right now from a musical existence where Things might have always been fun and social events, and and all of a sudden they're being asked to do much more. Uh, they're being asked to dedicate more time to their craft and to um, maybe surrender some of their their free time and uh, think about it in more serious in, in a more serious way. And that doesn't necessarily have to not be fun, but I think we've all experienced that uh, sensation as students and professionals of this thing that used to just be a lot of fun, now being a job, some of the magic seems like it's it's taken out of, of the experience. So that book deals with um, realizing that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, that, that the joy is actually in the doing of the thing and the practice time and the process of getting better. That's where the joy is. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the performance is maybe just the icing on the cake, uh, but to, to really take joy in those day-to-day -day activities that we all do is something that I think is going to be really valuable. And then the one that we're talking about in the 
uh, upper level in grad class is a book called Flow, which is about just optimal performance psychology. And I've just started reading it. And some of the students have, have mentioned that they've started reading too in preparation for our first discussion. And I'm really excited about it. Like it's not just going to be something that applies to music, but it's going to be something that applies to all of our lives. Um, and it's similar to the, the the book by Daniel Pink, but it's it's more developed. I guess it's more of a delving into the psychology that we use to deal with completing these tasks, whether they be they be practicing or washing dishes or taking that test or just getting up every day. You know, it just it's very encompassing, all encompassing. So I think that getting together as a group and talking about these issues and sharing our own experiences up to this point in, in these different areas is going to be something that really brings the studio together um, because we do go through the same things um, mm -hmm. as, as students and as professionals. And music, especially a university music level and especially a place like Florida State that, that's such a high level school, you know, it's easy to feel like things are a competition a lot of times. And we we go through the process of practicing and performing with that idea of trying to achieve at the highest level and to execute and, and all those things. So it very much feels like a competition in the way that sports do. But I think that can be a very toxic thing too because we start to see ourselves as put, pitted against our neighbor. And, you know, if this person does well, well that means I'm I'm horrible and you know, I'm, I'm not as good as them and this kind of thing. And so I think the more we can get away from that toxicity that um, an environment, any competitive environment produces, the better it is for everybody. And I think that that will be a big thing that will help um, increase the, the positive aspects of, of the studio culture that I'm trying to bring to Florida State. I'm enjoying you doing this with the students. I had some of this with Dr. Lehman in my undergrad, and I knew mm -hmm. how much it meant to me, so I'm sure your students are appreciating it now, too. But yeah. just to transition, I do want to like promote some of the things that you're working on, so do you have any projects that you'd like to plug? Yeah, I, well, I mentioned our, our seventh quartet CD just came out, and I realized when I was putting that one up on the website that I had not put up the digital files for our sixth CD. <laughs> I think I was, it was around the time I was moving to Florida or something like that. Mm. And I just, I didn't have the tools to do it at the time or something. So um, for anybody that wants to hear that recording we made, which I believe is the premiere recording of the Georg Friedrich Haas uh, mm. quartet that is now available via MP3 uh, or whatever wave file I put up on there. Um, my CD, my solo CD is going to be uh, released fairly soon and it has uh, music by um, some of my favorite composers, many of whom happen to be good friends, uh, Drew Baker, Dave Remenick, Joe Michaels, uh, Swedish composer Klaus Torstensson, um, and some others that I'm, I'm just really excited about. And so that is nearly done, and I hope to release it this fall. I know I've been saying that for a while, but <laughs> <laughs> one of the things about recording is it always takes longer than you think it's going to, but we're, we're kind of in the finishing stages of it. So that'll be coming out soon. And then um, in terms of other personal projects, a lot of it has been kind of taken up by um, the things we were just talking about in developing the discussions uh, for the studio. We're having a lot of great guest artists in uh, as guest speakers this, this uh, semester. We have Marcus Weiss, one of my saxophone gurus and uh, mentors, <laughs> and uh, he's going to come in and talk about some uh, philosophical things, which, which is kind of what he does, and I'm really excited about that. And then we have my good friend Alm, who teaches at the Cincinnati Conservatory, and he's going to talk about what he does as an artist. 
and I'm really excited about that because it's one of the things I want to do with our guest artist is to show students here that, okay, it's not just band director or college professor, but there's all kinds of other things that you can do with the skills that you're learning here. And then we have Ellie Parker, who's coming in to talk about a project that she did, I believe, in um, women's prisons in the Houston area that I think is going to be really interesting. And then we have a guest from Van Dorn, Martin Trio, who is going to discuss mouthpiece development over the years. He gave a really interesting talk in Thailand a couple, or I guess last year that I, I saw. That's going to be fascinating. And I've got some other guests lined up for next semester as well that, that I'm excited to unveil soon. And I hope this is something that we can continue doing the Zoom thing. We realize that, oh, there's maybe more possibilities for having guests and interaction than we might have otherwise thought. And Jonathan Nickel and I have talked about having some interstudio projects in the future too. So that's in the very early stages, but that's something to look forward to. And then I think more generally, I'm, I guess one of my big projects personally, musically, spiritually, everything else <laughs> is, uh, is, is reconciling what we do as musicians with uh, the current environment in terms of social justice. It's something that I've been interested in reading a lot about over the last three or four years, been reading books about organizing and nonviolent action, nonviolent protests, reading about the history of the free jazz movement. And it's been fascinating to make the connections between the music and, and the movements and they are very strong indeed. And it's also made me realize that what we do in the so-called classical saxophone world is just not measuring up to what it means to be our, our best selves and to mm. um, take in every available musical tradition that we can. And, and fortunately, these, these voices are beginning to be heard, and we're starting to think about what we do differently. And so that's something that is, is a big personal project of mine is to do things like redo my repertoire list and mm. to uh, figure out what I can do in terms of my own artistry that will meet the needs and um, meet my interest also of, of exploring not just um, one very small segment of, of musicianship and, and music. That's one thing that I've found in common with a lot of guests actually recently especially is that that common trend of making sure you want to be more inclusive. A great trend to see. It makes me happy that almost every one of my guests has mentioned something along those lines. So I appreciate your effort in that too. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that my whole life since like basically seventh grade, I've had really varied musical interests. You know, I listened to really uh, extreme metal for a long time and then I got <laughs> Then I got into um, underground hip-hop for a long time. I've listened to, like, various kinds of dance musics and kind of everything in between. And, you know, more recently, in the last five years, it's been listening to a lot of free improvisation and, and jazz and stuff like that. So I've always enjoyed those kinds of music, but now the question is, how do I bring it into my own practice and in a way that's meaningful for students, too? I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's great having you, even though we're just probably a couple blocks away. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Of course. And that is a wrap for season one. I am so excited that I got to do this and talk to so many amazing people. This was really a fun experience for me because I got to hear stories that I'd never heard before from some of my mentors and some people that I didn't know as well. So I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. I will be continuing the podcast. I will be taking a short break just because the semester is busy and there's other things that I have to make sure I get done. But it will be coming back. I can promise you that. Thanks for listening.